In June of 2020, Apple announced that they were transitioning their MacBooks to Apple Silicon, known to the rest of the industry as ARM. When they launched their first models in November of 2020, and independent reviewers had a chance to test them, the machines turned out to be as fast as anybody dared to think, last as long on battery as anybody had hoped, and run programs just as well. How did Apple make this dramatic change, and what does that mean for the rest of the computer industry? In this episode of Tech with Tommy, we dive deep into the history of computers, examine what really happened, and how Apple was able to do what they did. As always, I'm your host, Tommy. I can't predict the future, but I think this has huge ramifications that will have an impact over the coming decade. As it stands, Apple has crossed a chasm where they have a viable and wildly used operating system on an ARM processor and therefore a set of laptops that can last much longer, consume less power than anything the competition can deliver and are as powerful, or more so, than the laptops they replaced, all without removing the ability to run old programs. The competition, for the moment if nothing else, is left on the other side of this chasm with computers that are, at best, cheaper. How did we end up in this situation? What magic is this arm? And why can't everybody else use it? Let's drop down a bit. Actually, while we're at it, let's also drop back in time. Our story will make more sense that way. We will drop back to the time when the Soviet Empire appeared as dangerous and mobile phones meant Uncle Bob had put the landline in the backseat of his car. When we look back in time, we always remember life as simpler than it was. But computers really were simpler back then. Much simpler. For our purposes, this means we drop back to August 2nd, 1981. Ronald Reagan had just taken over the White House from Jimmy Carter and South Vietnam had surrendered to the North only six years before. What we are interested in, however, is the PC, or personal computer. On that day, Wednesday, August 12, 1981, IBM releases the PC. And no, I didn't make an error in the script for this episode. IBM called the first home and office computer, the personal computer. In fairness to IBM, that moniker is mostly correct. Before this, the computers IBM made had been the famous takes up a room and has less power than your present-day wristwatch, models of the 60s and the now so small we build a table around them and call it a desk mini-computer of the 70s. Both were much too bulky and far too expensive for an ordinary person. Some alternatives did exist. Apple had released their Model 2, but not the Macintosh. Commodore had released their Pet, but not the much more famous Commodore 64. And then game company Atari had just released their first home computer. Despite that, the IBM PC was many people's first home or office computer, and when the dust settled on the 1980s, only the IBM PC with its clone was really a contender. 
A small, devoted following would keep the Macintosh alive. But with Steve Jobs out of Apple, it looked like Apple was going to be bankrupt and the legacy of the IBM PC would rule supreme. The PC is, of course, a joke by the standards of today. 16 or 64 kilobytes of RAM, a speaker that could only be programmed to beep in different ways. You had to pay extra for the hard drive. It wasn't standard. And the CPU? A 4.77 megahertz Intel 8088. That puts it on par with my nearly two decade old graphics calculator. Except that 888. IBM had Intel make a tiny change to their 886 so that it worked with an 8-bit bus and that became the 888, but in reality they were mostly the same. Companies have come and gone since then. The Cold War ended in a whimper instead of a flash. Mobile phones became a thing, became tiny, then smart and then huge again. IBM stopped making computers at all. And in all that time, the processor that was in your brand new computer was still based on the x86 platform. The 286, the 386, the 486, or should have been the 586 but was rebranded Pentium, the Pentium Pro and so on are all based on the design of that original chip. That is important for two reasons. If you get a new computer, it can still run all your old programs. If you can't do that, you'll be forced to rebuy all your old software when you upgrade it to a new computer. In fact, you could run DOS on a modern computer. In 2017, a YouTuber by the name of LGR installed DOS on a then modern computer and was able to play all games on it. Of course, going back that far, serves only the practical purpose of because you can. The other thing it meant was that the processor got more and more complex and had support for more and more over the years because you can never get rid of the old stuff. Okay, so that is history. But what does a processor actually do? Well, it processes stuff. Specifically, instructions. Now, those instructions aren't instructions like start this program, send a package over the internet, or even display this image on the screen. We are talking much more basic. Add these two numbers together, read the number at this particular place in memory, write to this particular place in memory, compare these two numbers. If the first of the two numbers you compared are bigger, start reading instructions from this place in memory instead, and so on. Any processor can do that. The main difference is speed. The x86 also got instructions that were more complicated, such as direct hardware support for the standard encryption, instruction that allows it to work more efficiently on 3D graphics, and piles of other specialized instructions. This has meant two things. The processor is fast, complicated, and uses a lot of power. Back in the day, this didn't matter so much because none of these machines were laptops and the power they used were coming from a wall socket and even then the power used wasn't that much because the processors ran at low clock speeds. You could get, and I'm using air quotes here, 
so-called portable machines, that weighted as little as 13 kilos and required a wall socket because it didn't have a battery, but instead required it to plug into the wall to use it. Today, IBM doesn't even make computers, because other manufacturers figured out to make clones of IBM computers that could still run their software and made them better and cheaper. To that, of course, they had to use the same CPUs. As I mentioned, by 1990, only a few companies were using anything else. And by 2006, even Apple had to convert their computers to Intel's processors, because the power PC architecture they had used in their computers used so much power that computers were effective space heaters. The dominance of Intel seemed complete, and would have been if it wasn't for mobile. Mobile devices have very different needs from other computers, including laptops, because they are going to spend most of their time running off a battery. At the same time, nobody in the mid-teens were using a phone as a primary computing device, and even if it was possible, you wouldn't want to run desktop software on them because they didn't have a keyboard or a mouse. The closest thing to that would be PDAs like the Palm Pilot, which could run stripped-down versions of Word and Excel designed for mobile computers. So when Apple announced their iPhone in 2007, it didn't run an x86 processor or anything else made by Intel. It ran an ARM processor, and the latest model still does. You might have noticed something interesting if you've been into computers for a long time. If you brought a five-year-old computer in 2000, you would get a very old computer that probably couldn't even run Windows 98 or any of the modern programs. If you brought a five-year-old computer last year, you wouldn't be getting a fast computer and you would be unable to do most high-end gaming, but other than that, you would have a perfectly fine machine. That is because computers are not getting faster nearly as fast as they were in the 1990s. Smartphones, on the other hand, they're still getting faster at about the same rate, which is much quicker than computers are. A few companies did notice it. Microsoft has had a version of Windows running on ARM processors for years, meant to be used on devices such as ATMs, ticket sales machines, and so on. And they released a version of their Surface Pro with a custom-designed ARM processor. It was just not enough. Because Microsoft hadn't been able to make x86-based programs run well on it, and without that, you're back to having to buy your software again for the new platform, which means nobody wants to use it, which means nobody wants to sell software for it, which really ensures nobody uses it. Unlike the x86, the way the ARM process works is that it can very quickly deal with a relatively small and simple number of instructions. That also means that the language it speaks is completely different from the x86. So if you're trying to run an x86 program on an ARM processor, you need to convert the instructions into the new language. This is not as difficult as it seems, and computer programs have done that for years. Every Flask game, every Java applet, is written in a particular machine language designed to run that program, and not x86. So they all need to be translated before they can be used. The challenge is that those languages were designed to be translated. Neither x86 nor ARM ever were. If you're not bilingual, that 
might not seem like a big deal. If you translate between human languages, you just have to use different words and sometimes in a different order, right? In the simple case, that is true. Ein Apfel is the literal German translation of an apple and carries the same meaning for a German speaker as an apple would for somebody who speaks English. The trouble comes when you have to translate something more complex. For example, in English, the word cousin does not imply gender, only what relation you have. In Danish, there is no word for cousin that doesn't imply the gender of the cousin. If you were to translate a sentence using the word cousin into Danish, you would have to figure out what the gender the cousin was in some other way to be able to do that. Human languages are messy, we all know that. But surely computer languages are simpler, right? No, actually. In the nearly 40 years since its debut, that processor has gotten massively complex. From simply executing one instruction at a time, it is now a beast that runs several processors at the same time and can do what is called out-of-order, ahead-of-time execution, as well as several other fancy things. If the processor guesses that you are going to request some value for memory, then it may fetch that memory before it gets to the part of your program that actually needs it. If some part of your program is stuck waiting for some value in memory, then the processor might execute the next portion of your program while you wait. Naturally, it can only do so if it can prove that doing so will not change how your program behaves. But by doing all these complex things, your program will run much faster. The trouble is that the guarantees the x86 processor gives are stricter than the guarantees the ARM processor gives. The ARM processor has more freedom to manipulate when different parts of your program access different memory locations than the x86 processor have. That is not a problem when your program is written for the ARM processor, but it means that you are to guarantee correctness when that program is running on an ARM processor. You essentially have to disable all that fancy memory stuff, which means performance is going to be terrible. Microsoft was unable to work around this. Apple was. What Apple did was design a specific mode in their M1 processors that, when enabled, Use the same guarantees as the code would get when it runs on an x86. Apple could do this because they wrote the translation software, they wrote the operating system and everything in between, so they were able to optimize their processor so it was easier to work with. Doing that and other similar tricks, plus the 10 or so years of experience Apple had developing the ARM chips for their phones meant that when the M1 came out, it not only had an excellent battery performance, made so little heat that you could put it in a computer without a fan, performed well natively, but also performed well on legacy programs. Apple had crossed the chasm successfully, and can now produce computers that run quieter, with less power and just as fast, or faster, than their old computers. Meanwhile, all the other computer manufacturers are stuck with the old system. At some point, somebody else will be able to cross the chasm, but I don't see that happening anytime soon. Which means that anybody who wants the most portable computer with the best battery life is going to have to buy a computer from Apple.
Microsoft might be able to make an ARM computer that works at some point, but they will be limited by the fact that they never had nearly the control of the entire setup that Apple had. If the reason people buy your system is that it runs on all computers, and how can you make one that requires custom tweaks? I didn't want to wait, so I brought an M1 when it became available, and even invested some money in Apple stocks. The M1 has served me well so far. The stocks, less so. I hope this episode has given you a new appreciation of the complexity of computers, or at least entertained you. If you have any comments or suggestions for this podcast, please write to me at feedback at techwithtommy.com. That is feedback at techwithtommy.com. And I will see you in the next episode. Until then, stay curious.